That's Vicky, and in case you didn't know it, that's Isaac. And that's Emery <laughs> trying to, uh, he's trying to upstage you a little bit. They, they did a great job. Good job. He's also my bodyguard from this moment on. Uh, <laughs> Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 8, please. Welcome, Brock. Good to see you. You have two duties today. Listen and keep my brother-in-law awake through Pastor Henry. (laughs) Well said. Well said. Maybe I'll just go five minutes today. You know? (laughs) Hebrews 8. And verse 1, and we're going to talk a little bit today about a lot of things, but mostly Jesus' priestly promeity. If you remember Romans, we had a subject called promeity, P-R-O-M-E-I-T, which is the description of God for us, the Latin pro-me, P-R-O-M-E, for me, for us, pro nobis, for us. There is no God, but God for us, and God isn't God unless he's for us. That's what he's all about. And Jesus at the right hand of the Father, as our great archpriest, is the primary expression of God's promeity, of God being for us. And so I want to consider that today. The summing up, or the chief focus of the book of Revelation, which we studied for a few years in 515 hours of teaching. The chief focus of the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, as it's called, that was given to John, whom I believe was the beloved disciple for the churches of Asia Minor at the time, on the verge and on the eve of the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. The chief focus of that book was a lamb enthroned a lamb who had been slaughtered, enthroned with God on the throne, joint occupancy with God the Father, co-equal with God the Father. And Hebrews, the summing up and the main focus of Hebrews, is an enthroned archpriest. And that's where we are right now in Hebrews 8.1. The reason I've been hovering around this for quite a while is because it's the some or the focus of what we've been saying so far, says the Hebrews author. We have an archpriest who is of such significance that he is seated next to the majesty. Revelation has what is called a circumlocution. That's when you talk around having to say God himself. And that's a creative way to do it because the Hebrews author does that also. The one seated on the throne is a circumlocution in Revelation for God, for God the Father. He's called the Ancient of Days in Daniel chapter 7. He's called my father by Jesus. He's called your father by Jesus. And in Hebrews, that one seated on a throne in Revelation 5, 7, for example, 5, 13, 7, 15, 21.5, 
is a circumlocution, a way around saying God. And it makes us think of God because circumlocution means to talk around God. Hebrews also has a circumlocution. It's simply majesty. Seated at the right hand of the majesty is our great archpriest. Seated next to the one who is enthroned in heaven is a lamb. The beautiful connection between the apocalypse of John and the homily that we call Hebrews is that this lamb and this archpriest are one, one person, one and the same. And so God and the lamb are said to occupy the same throne in Revelation. This shared occupancy is intended in the phrase, the throne of God and the Lamb, in Revelation 22, 1 and 3, for example. In 22, 1 and 3, the throne of God and the Lamb, indicating that the Lamb has equality with the Lord, with God himself, with the Father, in terms of being and essence and rank and authority and sovereignty and divinity. And yet, he is distinct from the Father as the Lamb, the Lamb who in John's Gospel, and we studied Revelation in connection with or in a perichoresis with a blend with John's Gospel because both have to do with, look, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Look, he's walking and John the baptizer sees him and announces him. Look, now he's enthroned. We see Jesus enthroned in Revelation, enthroned in Hebrews. We see him enthroned in 1 Corinthians 15. See him enthroned in the micro-apocalypse there. In another micro-apocalypse, we see him enthroned in Psalm 110.1 as it reaches its way into Philippians 2, 5 through 11 along with Isaiah 45, 23. TV series, streaming services, movies, portray Jesus Christ so that we can see him with the eyes of our heart as he ministers in Capernaum, in Nazareth, as he drives out demons with the finger of God, his own finger as the theandric person, as God-man. We see him exercising his compassion on the crowds, feeding the multitudes, healing. Everyone who came to him for healing was healed. We see his ministry, we see his teaching, we see his miracles. And we do not disconnect his miracles as weird happenings because they all point to a new creation that he's going to bring in his second advent. What we do not see in the Gospels, even though we see him risen, having been risen, we do not see that atomic moment when he is resurrected. It happened in an enclosed tomb. We did not see that atomic, and I literally mean atomic, because the Greek word is a plus tomas, unable to be split again, atomas, where we get our word atom in 
what has been now discredited, quantum mechanics and other elements of physics have now been surpassed by greater theories and that they call it the atom because it can't be split any further. They found out, of course, that it can be electron, neutron, etc. But atomos originally meant a moment that cannot be split so instantaneous is that moment that it's impossible even to capture with the element of time is something that happens in an eternal instant. We do not see the eternal instant that happened when Jesus was resurrected from the dead, made alive from the dead, and bodily raised from the dead, bodily made alive in the enclosed tomb. We do know that it happened in an atomic moment because the scripture says in a moment, in an atomos moment, as 1 Corinthians 15 puts it, in the twinkling of an eye, we shall be changed. So we know that that moment happened to Jesus, and we know that that moment will happen to us. We shall all be changed. We will not all see death. We will not all experience the sleep of death, as it's called, or the moment of death, but we will all be changed. And that's what I like to call the permanent alteration of our somatic status, our bodily status, the past, permanent alteration of somatic status. The Bible makes a big deal out of it, and it's in Philippians 3.20, and I'm going off script here, of course, which is usual. The script is go off script. Philippians 3.20, we await from heaven a deliverer, a soter, a savior, even our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change the bodies of our humiliation, the bodies of our lowly state that we, we have right now, that we stand in, move in, walk in now, the bodies of our humiliation, and make it conformable to his own body of glory. This is, again, what I like to call the permanent change or radical alteration of the human condition and even the universal condition. And so the salvation that Jesus Christ embodies, the salvation that he brings, the salvation that he has enacted already is not only anthropological, the saving of humanity, but cosmological, the liberation of all of creation in all of its times in an instantaneous and miraculous moment. So we're going to experience a moment that we haven't seen that's happened in Jesus. We do see him raised, and the scripture, even the gospels, portray him in his resurrection. The book of Acts says that he came and went, as it were, into the presence of the disciples and spoke every time he was with them about the kingdom of God. And so we think that maybe we would also if we're controlled by his spirit. So the one seated on the throne in Revelation and the majesty in Hebrews is also the same person, the first hypostasis of the triune God. Hypostasis simply means person. We talk about hypostatic union, and that became a big 
phrase with the Reformation theologians, hypostatic union. It just means personal union, the personal union in Jesus Christ of two natures. That's pretty much all that it means. So hypostasis is a synonym for person. It can also mean substance. It can also mean, in another sense, assurance. Faith is the assurance, the substance of things hoped for. It's, in a sense, the personification of things hoped for. Jesus is the personification of things hoped for himself. We're going to get into that in Hebrews 11 and with Hebrews 11.1. 1. In Hebrews 11.3, we may, if I, if I have the time and the inclination and my intellect is still intact, we may tackle a few strongholds that are in the human race right now that have been brought to us by people like Einstein and Darwin and Freud and Carl Jung and Karl Marx because I want to, well, bring down those strongholds with the word of God without getting distracted I think we're going to see that by faith and through faith we understand that the things that are seen are made of things that are not seen. And that's going to be something that will come up soon. The Bible has it way long before Copernicus and before the so-called Copernican Revolution and Galileo, Galileo, and the rest of these characters. The Bible had it all together. Hypostasis then means person. So when I say that the one seated on the throne in Revelation and the majesty in Hebrews is the same person. He is the first hypostasis of the triune God, God the Father, the enthroned Lamb who is equal in authority, sovereignty, and divinity with the one on the throne, with the Father, is the same person as the seated archpriest in Hebrews 8.1. The lamb who had been slaughtered is the same as the archpriest enthroned in Hebrews. The lamb and the archpriest are one. Just as Jesus is the judge and the judged, so he is both the offerer and the offering. He is the archpriest and the lamb. He is the antitype for all the animals sacrificed on the, in the order of Aaron, and the lamb is the second hypostasis of the triune God called God begotten in John 1.18, or the Son of God, more commonly, who is also the Son of Man. This same one who is enthroned in Hebrews as an archpriest and who is in joint occupancy with the one seated on the throne in Revelation is the Son of Man of Daniel 7, 13 and 14, who is seen coming with clouds, not to us, but to the Ancient of Days. It's a depiction of his ascension after having purified the sins of the world in Hebrews 1, 3, where he approaches the Ancient of Days who says to him, sit at my right hand until I make all of your enemies a footrest for your feet. Oh, and by the way, you are a priest forever. Psalm 110.1, Psalm 110.4. 
Now, John does a very creative thing in Revelation 1-7 because it talks about this one who is like a son of man coming with the clouds. Behold, he comes with the clouds, and every eye will see him. He has already come with the clouds or with glory to the Father, and the Father has caused him to be enthroned and crowned with glory and honor. But the world has yet to see the same Son of Man, and seeing him, believing in him, seeing him, experiencing his salvation, for every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Seeing him is a, a way of saying every person will be saved. Seeing him. This is the will of my Father that you may see the Son and believe in him and that he will raise you up on the last day. So even those that pierced him, even those who were immediately responsible for crucifying him, for piercing Yahweh in the flesh, and that's those immediately. We were all responsible, but only a handful were immediately responsible for the crucifixion of the Son of Man. Every eye will see him, even those that pierced him. And that will produce, as Zechariah 12.10 says, a spirit of mourning by all the nations, all the families of the earth will mourn over him as over a, an only begotten son, a firstborn son. But that mourning is not a mourning of what the Bible calls the sorrow of death or the sorrow of this world, which is death, but it is a sorrow that yields to salvation. For there is a sorrow, a godly sorrow, that yields to a salvation that's not to be repented of, as 2 Corinthians 7.10 says. So it's talking about the radical alteration of the human condition when every eye sees him. That correlates with every knee genuflecting to him of knees above the earth, under the earth, on the earth, of every tongue acknowledging him or literally pledging allegiance to him willingly and worshipfully to the glory of God the Father as we just sang. So the lamb and the archpriest are one. The lamb of Revelation and the archpriest of Hebrews are one. Just as Jesus is the judge and the judged, one person, he's both the offerer and the offering, the archpriest and the lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. The Son of Man is also called the second man. Why the second man? The second man, the one from heaven in 1 Corinthians 15, 47. There is no one who has ascended to heaven, but he who first descended, the Son of Man, who descended from heaven. For God the Son, the Son of God, always had an anthropic form. He descended from heaven in an anthropic form, but only in his incarnation did he become flesh. And that anthropic form became like our human flesh, like it. And you, I refer you to previous messages. He's called the second man as Adam is called the first man because the first man was a microcosm of the whole universe, the whole cosmos. The man was a microcosm of the whole universe. 
And the first man became a microcosm in which all of humanity was embodied. And so the second man, Jesus Christ, became the second microcosm of the human race and microcosm of the whole cosmos, meaning that he embodies the whole redeemed new creation. And he is the second man. The second man, the one from heaven, 1 Corinthians 15, 47, meaning the second all-inclusive representative man. When it comes to all-inclusive representative human beings, there are only two, Adam, the first Adam, and the last Adam, eschaton Adam, Jesus Christ. They are the only They are not the only men or the only human beings that have ever lived. Obviously, there's a few more here today. But they are the only inclusively representative human beings, representing not only and embodying themselves not only all of humanity, but all of the universe. They are the human being as a microcosm, comes all the way back from some of the ancient philosophers, but also from the Old Testament and the New Testament. All-inclusive representation. Adam, the first man, the first microcosm of the universe of proportionate being. Christ, the second man. He is the second person or second hypostasis in the triune God as God, but he's also the second man the second inclusive representative man. So there's so many things about Jesus, like I said, when we see him finally face to face and not through a glass darkly like we see him now, then I think we're going to be fascinated with him. I don't think, you know, people say, well, you're going to be with your relatives again. Well, maybe after a while we'll see them. I think we're going to be a little bit fascinated with seeing Jesus face to face because I've been preaching about him for 45 years, and I haven't even touched the surface of the wonder of who he is, the mystery of who he is, the glory of who he is, and yet he is a familiar friend. He is my brother, your brother. So, as some of you have probably been screaming out in your mind, let's get to the actual text of Hebrews 8. It says, and this is my translation so far, now the summing up of of what we are saying is this. We have an archpriest who is of such significance that he is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. When you get to Hebrews 12.2, we have another reference to that throne, but this time the circumlocution is gone and the center is there, the throne of God in the heavens. And then verse 2 calls him a temple servant. That's how I translated this. Your translation probably says a minister in the holy places. That's what he is now. But I call it a temple servant in the holy places of the true tent, the one pitched by the Lord, not man. That word for temple servant is L-E-I-T-O-U-R-G-O-S. But then you knew that already. And so I did something which makes me, I guess, a little bit Generation Z-ish. I went and Googled it. Not because I want the definition. They don't need to tell me. But I wanted to hear a Greek guy pronounce the word, leturgos, he says. I'm not going to talk like that. 
I'm going to be my usual stump-jumping self and mispronounce every Greek word I ever talk about. So I'll call it leitourgos, leitourgos, L-E-I-T-O-U-R-G-O-S. And the reason I'm not Gen Z is because as much as I love all people, this little symbol here with the thumbs up is now by Gen Z, that's called passive aggressive. So if you do that, you might hurt a Gen Z person. So what are you supposed to write to them? Well, you can't do the kissy lips because that's aggressive. So what are you supposed to say to the Gen Z people? Well, nothing. <laughs> is, is, but, but then your silence will be, be passive aggressive, interpreted as silence, passive aggressive silence. So what, what do you do? You can't go out of this world, so you just have to live with them, I guess. And maybe if, if they're ever willing, you might even be able to tell them the good news of the gospel. And that's what I think is going to be the ultimate end of this all thing. So the word often translated to describe Jesus' heavenly vocation, we could call it, is minister, is leturgos. Leturgos. Leturgos, he said. And as it's used in the New Testament, it stresses, it stresses accountability to God. Now, here's God, equal to God, accountable to God. God in becoming flesh, in becoming man, it becomes obedient. He actually becomes obedient to God and accountable to God. Accountable to God for what? For you, for me, for our sins, for our consequences of our sins. Thank God. He became, you know, the New Testament is God writing his laws upon the heart of man, and Jesus is the one in whom God did that for us. And he became obedient and fulfilled the statutes of God for man. So Paul's words near the close of his epistle to the Romans gives, this is what I saw months ago, it gives us the gist of the meaning of this word, leitugos. He speaks of the grace that was given to him as a minister, leitugos. That's the word he uses. The grace that was given to me, he said, as a minister, accountable to Christ Jesus for the Gentiles. Paul, the apostle of the Gentiles, made himself accountable to God for the Gentiles, meaning he was a priest who had to present an offering to God. That's how he pictured it in his mind. Now, Paul is a savant, S-A-V-A-N-T. I'm not. So when I read his words, I'm reading the words of a prophetic savant, of someone who has seen Jesus in glory. And so I respect Paul. And I don't say, I want to be like Paul. I say, I want to be like Jesus, but I know I'm not going to get anywhere near that in this life. And I find that out more and more every day. But Paul was a savant. He was a true knower. And what he wrote, therefore, has to be, you only can interpret it as you transcend yourself and begin to relate a little bit to him. But he, per he perceived himself as a priest. His offering was to be the Gentiles that he was to offer to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Now, that means that he was accountable to bring the gospel all over the world and present a first fruits offering to God. 
the new covenant community from all the nations, he was supposed to present that to God as a sacrifice, as an offering, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Did he do it? Yeah, Revelation 7, 9 talks about it. You see, an uncountable number of people from all the nations before the what? The throne of God and the Lamb. That's what Paul was talking about. That's the offering. That's not all the universe of people, but the church, those Gentiles and Jews who believed in Jesus Christ and have throughout this age, are a kind of first fruits of a universal human community redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, by the Lamb. And so in Romans 15, 16, Paul does that. That really helped me because I don't see this in any commentary, but it helped me understand what leturgos means. And Paul had said at the very beginning of Romans that through Jesus Christ, crucified and risen from the dead, he had, quote, received grace and apostleship, which is the authorization and the power. And the power wasn't in Paul, but in the gospel. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. So Paul was given grace to become an apostle and... It says he was given authorization and power by the proclamation of the gospel to bring about the allegiance of faith in all nations. That's why as he looked back at his ministry, which started in Jerusalem and went in an arc all the way up to Croatia and he was going to go to Spain. He never really made it to Spain, but he was going to go through Rome to Spain and it was in fulfillment of that ministry that God gave him. And so it was to bring about the allegiance of faith in all the nations, among all the Gentiles, for the sake of his name. Romans 1.5. So here, Romans, I like to call it chimes, with John's depiction in Revelation 7.9 of what he calls a vast multitude which no one is able to number from every nation and tribe and people group or culture and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. That is the Lamb who was enthroned. This is an apocalyptic depiction of the new covenant community which is a prolepsis, not the whole, but a forecast of the universally redeemed humanity. So very helpful to us in our task of interpreting Hebrews 8.2, Paul refers to his accountability to God as a minister, leturgos, that's our key word today, by a metaphorical reference to the priesthood. which he is to offer, and as a priest, he offers Gentiles from all different nations as a kind of firstfruits offering to God as a prolepsis of the universal community, all of which will express their allegiance to the Lord, ultimately. And so Romans 15, 16, again, more fully, he says, as a minister, Leitugos, accountable to Christ Jesus for the Gentiles to perform the priestly duty. So here, Leitugos is connected with priest. To perform the priestly duty of proclaiming the good news of God. 
So what am I doing today? I'm performing a priestly duty. And so are you every time you proclaim the good news of God. Paul, as an apostle of Jesus Christ, described his ministry in terms of accountability to Messiah, to Messiah Jesus, to perform the priestly duty of preaching the gospel, the power of God's salvation to the nations or the Gentiles. In this priestly accountability, the apostles' goal was to present the Gentiles to God as an offering, sanctified, he said, by the Holy Spirit. Jesus' present priestly duty is primarily that of intercession for us because he's already offered himself to God in the duty of propitiation to secure our eternal redemption through his own blood and not the blood of animals. Intercession, then, is a term that's not far from mediation. There's only one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, the second man, who's also the second hypostasis of the triune God, who's also the Son of Man, who's also the Son of God, who's also the Lamb of God, who took away the sins of the world, who's also our great archpriest. Now, Intercession isn't far from mediation. According to Lonergan's 15th thesis that we studied for the first few weeks of our being back together, and once again I thank the men who are proclaiming and teaching so marvelously in the time in between Sundays on Wednesdays for the time being. They're doing a wonderful job. So I hope that you're taking advantage of that. But speaking of the intercession of the eternal priest as an integral part of the mediation of our redemption, as usual, Bulgakov, Sergius Bulgakov, goes deeper, goes further than any other theologian I've read to date, with the exception probably of Karl Barth. Speaking of the high priestly ministry of Jesus Christ, Bolgokov said this, in reality, the high priestly ministry is not limited solely to redemption from sin. Its meaning extends further. <clears throat> that is, it establishes the universal deification of man's creaturely being. It lays the foundation for true divine humanity. What I read from that is our great archpriest embodies a redeemed humanity, all of redeemed humanity, and is the new, all-inclusive representative of all of humanity and the new microcosm for a redeemed cosmos, all in him, our great archpriest. That's why the Old Testament priests, according to Exodus 28, verses 6 through 10, they wore a breastplate as part of their uniform, so to speak. And on that were 12 beautiful, stunning gems, each representing one of the tribes of Israel, the whole tribes of Israel. And so the picture is the high priest embodied the whole of Israel in himself, in his heart, in his being. And so Jesus represents or embodies in himself 
not only all of Israel, because he himself is the Israel of God and the God of Israel, but he embodies all of humanity because he made once and for all a sacrifice for all of humanity for all time. So that picture is beautiful. And so this is the further meaning of the archpriesthood of Jesus and his intercession for us as well as his mediation in general. Jesus' priestly intercession for us is an expression of the ongoing promeity of God and of his Christ. Paul speaks of this intercession in a climactic passage in the epistle to the Romans where the apostle calls Jesus Christ, he says, the one who died, and beyond even that, who was raised up, who is now and forever at the right hand of God, advocating on our behalf. Romans 8.34, and that, incidentally, is the segue from Romans to Hebrews, Romans 8.34, advocating on our behalf. As we've recently seen in Hebrews 7.25, in clear agreement with Romans 8.34, Jesus is able to save completely those who come to him or come through him to God. He lives to make intercession for us always. This priestly ministry, notice, make intercession for us. <clears throat> pro nobis, pro me, pro meity. It's an integral part of redemption as mediation. And it speaks of Jesus' representation of us in his person and by his very presence in heaven. He's become accountable to God as our single, all-inclusive representative. He has executed our obedience to God. Why did God become man? To execute man's obedience to God. To take into himself all of human essence and take human essence through death, through burial, through resurrection, through ascension to the right hand of the Father. And so we don't see that when we see Jesus in the Gospels, reflected in the Gospels, and that doesn't mean that that's an inferior vision by a long stretch. Of course it is not. But like the archpriests, and unlike the archpriests, is our great archpriest. As 1 John says, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, our advocate in his very person and in his very presence is the expiation of our sins and the sins of the whole world. It's not just that he made expiation. He is that expiation always and forever. The fresh reality of the cross of Christ is always fresh, always vibrant, always right there in an instantaneous moment. Just as that atomic moment in which he was made alive from the dead is always a moment that's always existent. And you're going to experience that moment, that atomic moment. It's going to be the biggest shock you ever had in your life, and it'll be the best shock you ever had, too. There's good shocks, 
and there's bad shocks. Like the archpriests of Israel, like them, just like them in a way, Jesus represents and in fact embodies all of Israel. Like the priest, the archpriest who wore a breastplate with gems, and when he went into the tent, he went in with all of Israel. So when he came out alive, so did all of Israel. When he appears again, it will be with all of Israel. This is a graphic statement that in Aaron and then in Aaron's sons, all Israel was embodied. Jesus is a greater than Aaron. That's the whole point of Hebrews. Greater than Aaron, greater than the priests of the Levitical order, greater than Moses as a mediator, greater than Aaron as a priest, greater than the angels as Leturgos, for they are also called Leturgos in Hebrews 1.7. Jesus, greater than Aaron, also embodies all of Israel, and for that reason, the scripture concludes all Israel will be saved because they will be embodied in Jesus, whose name means salvation. Yahweh saves, Yehoshua. You can find that in the Hebrew throughout the scriptures. Yeah, you, you see Yeshua, Yehoshua throughout the scriptures. So you'd think they would have recognized him when he came, named Yeshua. Unlike the archpriests of Israel, however, Jesus represents and in fact really embodies and comprises not only all of Israel, but all humanity in himself. Making all of humanity to be Israel, <clears throat> the Israel of God, in Israel's Messiah. Israel's Messiah is at once the Israel of God himself, and the Israel of God is all who are embodied with him and in him. But he who is the Israel of God himself is also the God of Israel, the Messiah of Israel. And the Messiah of Israel is also the Savior of the world. The Samaritans knew enough to call him that all in one breath in John 4.42. We know now that this is the Christ, the Savior of the world. We know now that this is the Messiah, the Savior of the world. God sent his son into the world that he might save the world through him, and he's called the savior of the world in 1 John 4, 14. This is the significance of his archpriesthood for us. In his death, he reconciled the world to God. In his exaltation to the right side of the Father's majesty, he embodies the reconciled world in himself. Though the Gospels, again, allow us to see Jesus in the days of his flesh, and that's an all-important vision. We can't understand him enthroned until we see him in the days of his flesh. And the Gospels even allow us to see his suffering and death and then to see him in bodily resurrection after, but we do not see the atomic moment of his resurrection in the enclosed sepulcher. In Sights and Sounds, when they did the play about Jesus, you see the tomb and you see a little spark and an explosion happening inside the tomb. And everybody goes, yay! That's the moment. We didn't see that, though. We didn't see it. God's holding that for us to not see but experience. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the sound of the last trumpet, we will all be 
changed. Because flesh and blood like this can't inherit the kingdom of God. We can't walk around in the heavenly city as is. So we've got to be changed, that's all. God solved the problem. When you have to do something right, you do it yourself, says God. Well, we've called mankind to be obedient to us. So what should we do, son? Do it ourselves. Here I am. Send me. Our great archpriest. He's seated. We see that in Hebrews. You don't see it in Luke, Matthew, Mark, although there's hints of it. We see him enthroned and crowned with glory and honor in Hebrews. He who in salvific, self-sacrificial love experienced the unimaginable consequences of sin for every human being through the entire course of human history. He, God, became accountable to God for us. Became responsible for our sins and endured their consequences, though he knew no sin. He experienced their wages, which is an absolute death, which you don't read about in obituaries. Recently, my best friend growing up lost his dear sister. He had 11 sisters and a brother, John Kenyon. And Linda was one I got to know pretty well. And my sister Sandy said, Linda went home to be with the Lord today. And then she said, at 623, because Mary, her sister, was with her. At 623, she said. And I thought immediately of Romans 623. The second part, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The wages of sin is death. But Jesus endured that for everyone, did he not? so that the gift of God is eternal life, obviously for everyone. Because the wages of sin being death, Romans 6.23a, and Jesus experienced death for everyone means that Jesus experienced the wages of sin for everyone. So that little thing called the gift of God, which is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, is equally for everyone. And so, Linda, she was always a little older than me, so. She was one of the older, we had like hundreds of kids on our street. We had enough to put a baseball team together at a moment's notice and play baseball for eight hours. And uh, I saw John's cousin one time, Chris. These stories aren't just stupid stories, and I'm not waxing demented. I'm just doing it because I, I've learned that the things you say before sink in better when you do something like folksy, you know. But when my sister's husband, Dave, died, I went up to the funeral, and I thought I was going to speak, but there were a, it was a line around the block coming to see my sister, Sandy. And she had ministered to so many people. I said, I'm not, I'm not going to say anything tonight. I didn't even like Dave anyway. <laughs> no, not really. But... Uh, <laughs> but The whole night was an endless line of people. There were troubled kids, emotionally troubled kids, and uh, people that had all kinds of terrible ailments that only Sandy could reach. And she wasn't 
official about it. She just ministered to them. And so I, the whole night was just people coming up to my sister Sandy. And I said, well, I'm not going to ruin that. And I didn't say anything that night. So, but Chris Kenyon came up to me once, and I hadn't seen this. I hadn't seen any of these people for 45 years. So what does a Vermonter say to you? He comes up, he's in a funeral home, he's got a baseball cap on. He comes up to me, and he says, we played a lot of baseball. Did he say anything else? No. <laughs> Did he have to? No. That's exactly the whole summary of the memory of our childhood. We played a lot of baseball. Eight hours a game, games after games. We had one ball. So if you hit it into the deep grass, baby, somebody had to find it because that was it. That was all. It was always dirty and grass-stained, and it was usually frayed a little bit. But that's baseball for you. That's good memories. Linda was part of that, and we're going to miss her. And I know Johnny's suffering a lot because he was very close to her. But 623, the gift of God is eternal life. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. They didn't ask me to do the eulogy, but I just did. So as we wind to a close, consider this. Jesus is still the lamb. Jesus is still the lamb enthroned with God, co-equal with God as a worthy recipient of universal worship. That's what Romans, Revelation 4 and 5 is all about. He remains a servant, a minister, a leturgos, leturgos. Even in his glorified state, because humility is not just a descriptor of him for the days of his flesh. Come and learn from me because I'm humble, he said. I am humble. Was he speaking only in his humanity? No, he was speaking in theandric speech. I, God, am humble. I, man, am humble. I, the God-man, am humble. God was humble before he became flesh in Jesus. God remains humble. God the Son is humble now. That's why he's a leiturgos. He's not, he, he's not making a big deal out of himself being God or Lord, but leiturgos, servant, temple servant, just like the temple servants in 1 Corinthians 9.13. He remains a servant in his glory. That's what he chooses, a leiturgos. Even in his glorious state, because humility is not just descriptive of him for the days of his flesh, but it's also descriptive of him in the endless duration of his glorification. What if you were in, you suddenly were in heaven, and you said, well, where's, where is he? And you're, you're, you're with somebody who's kind of nondescript and who's just talking with you and really friendly to you and wants to show you around and you're looking all around for this glorious being and then all of a sudden you finally realize this person that's been hanging out with you is Jesus because he chooses to be hum he had in the form of God he didn't choose to hold on to that like it's the last thing on earth that he had to grasp I want to make sure everybody knows I'm God I'm going to get down there and they better know it then why did he say, don't tell anybody? You just recognize me as Messiah, don't tell anybody. He didn't make such a big deal out of it. And what if we look backwards and say, wow, that person I just ridiculed instead of 
gave something to was Jesus. When you did this to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Whoa, that's going to be a heavy retrospective. It won't end in condemnation, though, because we're going to see a foreview of everything or a, a retrospective of everything in our life, but there won't be one ounce of condemnation in it, not one. Jesus took all the condemnation, all of it. That's why guilt is such an evil thing. Shame is important because it yields to repentance. And when we need repentance, we really need it bad because it's life. So in the closing moments, I want you to consider with me what it means for him to be leitorgos. He who is God became forever accountable to God for us. To Mary of Magdala, or Magdala, following his resurrection and announcing his ascension, he said, I'm ascending to my father and your father. He didn't say our father because my father to Jesus indicates a little different relationship than your father, you to God, because you weren't eternally begotten and consubstantial with the Father of the same essence, same divinity, sovereignty, etc. Oh, you thought you were? Sorry, just broke your bubble. Good shock. We should go away from people instead of saying, good talk, say, good shock. <laughs> he who is God became forever accountable to God for us. So when he said to Mary, go tell my brothers my disciples. I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. He calls God my God because as the God-man, he had become accountable to God. He calls God my Father because he's eternally begotten of the Father and consubstantial with him, of the same essence. He called God your God and my God, your God, he called God your God because in the realization of the new covenant promise, God says, I will be their God and they will be my people. See how I did that? Went right to the new covenant coming up in 8.6 and 8.8 8 through 13. Hebrews 8.10, Revelation 21.3. Revelation closes with that. I will be their God, and they will be my people. I will be their God, that's justification, universal. They will be my people, that's sanctification, universal. So he calls God his father, your father, because we are now in the son who's not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters, his siblings. So that's a little bit about Leiturgos that you don't see in commentaries. The slaughtered sacrificial lamb is the symbol of the cost to God or the price that was paid to secure our eternal redemption 
and the redemption of the world. The sacrificial lamb is also the sacrificing priest. And that's what's so significant about Hebrews 8.1. The flesh of Jesus Christ is represented now by the torn curtain in the temple in Old Jerusalem. It's now the curtain through which the king's highway passes, a highway paved with blood, the blood of Jesus, our great archpriest, his own blood and not the blood of sacrificial animals. And so with great boldness, we approach the throne through the torn curtain. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to muse, to meditate, to reflect, to think about our Savior, Jesus Christ. For what else is there? As the lover said to his beloved in Song of Solomon 4.6, until the shadows flee away, until the day breathes, literally, until the shadows flee away, and that's a reference to the shadow sacrifices disappearing in the once and for all sacrifice of Christ. I will get to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. Another way of saying until the radical alteration of our human condition, I will get to Jesus Christ and him crucified on the hill of Golgotha. And I will get to him who is raised, represented by the ascending frankincense, and who is seated at the right hand of the Father. Father, thank you for letting us see Jesus in this way. And we thank you in his name. Amen. Thank you for your attentiveness.